Would you join me in prayer before we are seated? God, we thank you for this glorious news that because of the cross we stand complete in you, that we have the hope of forgiveness and, and, and the fact that we can stand in your presence blameless and with great joy. Thank you, God, that we could celebrate this glorious cross here today. And now as we gather to hear your word, Lord, may it bind our hearts to love you more and cause us to be agents for your kingdom and your glory. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 is where we are this morning. As we're continuing our study of the book of Acts, we're looking at a very uh, important section of the book of Acts here in Acts 6. And kids, by the way, you'll see your pictures over there on the wall. So those of you who are drawing pictures during the service uh, and you want to bring them up, you'll notice today we're displaying your artwork. Church, go over there and look at those pictures. You'll see the story of Acts unfolding as the kids have been in the service drawing pictures of the, of the different uh, stories that we're going through in Acts. And so please look over there. There's wonderful, wonderful artwork. I'm really impressed with uh, what you kids have done, and I look forward to seeing your pictures today. But we are looking at Acts chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read the text as you're kind of getting settled there. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of the Lord, or the word of God, continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is an interesting section. It actually poses for us kind of the third great pressure that comes upon the church um, as the church seeks to be faithful. You know, it's interesting. We we have a very simple uh, uh, commission given to us in one sense. What we just just partook of, the the, the Lord's table, celebrating the cross, talking about the work of Christ and what He's done. God wants us to go into the world, make disciples, so that people would, would know this and believe this and experience the forgiveness and the peace and the restoration that comes from what Christ has done on the cross. And it's pretty simple. Go out, make disciples, tell people about them, establish them in Christ, teach them to follow Jesus. That's our mission. And he says, don't just do it in your own community. I want you to go everywhere in the whole world and go do this. Simple task in one sense. Right? Yet, there are forces that come against the church. And in fact, God has, 
actually designed it in such a way that this mission is to go out, but as it's going out, it's going to encounter a variety of different forces that are trying to work against it. We've seen two forces already. The first force is persecution. Right? Persecution comes against people who hate the gospel. They don't want to hear that Christ has died for them, that he is Lord, that we die to ourselves and serve him as Lord of our lives. Some people don't want to hear that, so they fight against that. And they, they, as they told the apostles, if you do this, we're going to kill you if you keep preaching this message about Jesus. And persecution is very real. We don't necessarily face it here in our country, but people around the world face this reality of persecution, that if they preach Christ, they could lose their life for it. Yet, as we saw, the apostles just said, hey, we're going to remain praying for boldness that we'd continue to proclaim Christ in the midst of persecution. Then we saw a second force come against the church. That second force was deception. Ananias and Sapphira, they were trying to create a counterfeit gospel. They were trying to create a counterfeit obedience. They in their own flesh were trying to act like Barnabas, act as if they were all in, but in reality they weren't. Here's the good news. God exposes deception. He exposes it. He says, all right, we're gonna, I'm going to reveal the hearts of people who are acting like they're in Christ, but they're not really in Christ. And in the midst of it, the church had to take a stand and say, you're, you're deceived, you're lying to the Spirit. And God took action to root out the deception. Now today, there's a third force that is trying to work on stopping the advancement of the gospel. And that third force is internal conflict. Internal conflict. Conflict within the body of Christ. And as we look at this internal conflict, we're going to see how the disciples and how the apostles handled this conflict. Now, as you look at this, I want you to understand in, in many ways that this is not really just about the selection of deacons. Right? We, could, we could just sit around and make this a message about deacons, but it's really not a message about deacons as much as it is as a message about the advancement of the kingdom of God. How the church responded to a conflict, what they did so that the word of God would continue to go forth. And that's the focal point of this. So we're going to look at this today. We'll look at the conflict, we'll see how it resolved, and we'll see the result of it and what happened when they remained faithful. And what I want us to understand is something pretty simple here. This passage will help us see something that's very real in the life of the church. There's a tension that exists within every church. It exists within our church. It exists with any church you're going to go to anywhere in the world. And the tension is the tension between caring for the body of Christ and that body of Christ advancing and making disciples of all nations. There's a tension that exists. And that attention is, the tension is very real because the needs of the body are very real. But sometimes if you get all myopically focused on the needs of the body, you stop advancing. But there's also reality that the church has to advance, and sometimes it can advance and not care for the needs of the body. Those two things, very real. And we're going to see that tension, and I want us to see how the church resolved that tension. Pretty simple. Hopefully we'll... We'll catch that today and hopefully learn some things about how we should view our church as well. But let's look at the conflict. Would you look again at verse 1 with me? He says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
So we see in this the, the setting. The church is continuing to grow. The apostles are out in the courtyard preaching. People are coming in by the hundreds. The church could be anywhere between twenty and 30,000 people. And every day, more and more people are placing their faith in Christ. At the same time, people are so in. They're all in that they're selling their properties, giving the money to the apostles, and the apostles are caring for people. They're caring in tremendous ways. So much so that they have these widows, and, and, and the widows in this case are probably older women who's, who, who, who are, are too old to remarry, and they don't have a means of caring for themselves, and so the people in the church are just selling their properties, giving the money, and they're saying, make sure that these widows eat every day because God's compassion is on those who can't care for themselves. And so they're supposed to be doing this. But now we have a problem. I want you to notice what it says. A complaint arose against the Hebrews. Okay? So a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected. I want you to kind of notice that little word there in there. The reason I want you to notice it is that it wasn't that the widows were complaining. There was actually a group of people within the church complaining. That's a surprise. That never happened. No, I'm joking. A group of people in the church complaining. And they're complaining because they're seeing that their group of people aren't getting fed. Literally. Food. Now, we have to understand this tension in order for it to make sense. So let me explain to you the difference between a Hellenist Jew and a Hebrew Jew. I'm resisting every joke to make a joke about the name Helen right now. Okay, and I'm just going to resist it all because it's probably not from God. So, but they're there and they're floating around in the back of my brain. So here's the issue. You have native Jews and what are called Hellenist Jews or Greek-speaking Jews. Let me explain to you the difference. A native Jew was a Jew who was born, or what they would call a Hebrew Jew, was a Jew who was born in Israel. Born in Israel, raised with parents who taught them Hebrew, went to the temple, worshipped in Hebrew, followed all of the sacrificial systems, followed all of the religious duties. So they were born in Israel, speaking Hebrew, following all of the religious customs. Paul, in Philippians 3, he called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he was a Jewish, born in Israel, he was one of these kind of Jews. They saw themselves as being really pure and noble because they are worshiping in the pure language, they're in Israel, they're, they're, they're at the temple. Okay? That, that is what's called a Hebrew Jew. Now you have another kind of a Jew. You have a Hellenistic Jew. Hellenistic Jew is a little bit different. This is somebody who was born outside of Israel. You remember during the dispersion, during the time of uh, Nebuchadnezzar when he came in and he conquered the land of He sent all the Jews out to different countries, and then 70 years later, they were allowed to come back into Israel, but some stayed living in other countries like Turkey and Syria and, you know, Iraq and Iran out in those regions. Well, those individuals, when they were living out there, they began to adopt the different cultures that were around them. Now, we know that uh, there was a really powerful conqueror who came through by the name of Alexander the Great. And what Alexander the Great did when he conquered the whole Roman Empire area, before it was the Roman Empire, but that whole region, when he conquered, he brought the Greek culture along with him. 
That was one of the things that he wanted to do when he conquered, is he wanted to advance the Greek system of learning, the Greek language, Greek philosophy, completely different than most Middle Eastern philosophies and a way of thinking, a way of operating. And so when he conquered, he did this thing called uh, converting the people into the Greek culture. The term for that, if you want to convert somebody to the Greek culture, the term is called to Hellenize them. Hellenization means you've adopted the Greek way of life. So if you are a Hellenistic Jew, what it means is that you speak Greek. You don't read the Old Testament in Hebrew. You read it in Greek. It's called the Septuagint. You're reading out of the the Greek Bible. And you weren't raised around the temple doing all the temple stuff, you were in a synagogue out in another country somewhere. Now, there was a prejudice between the Hebrew Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. You can understand the prejudice because we're human beings and we know how prejudiced we can be, right? It's very easy to look at a Hellenistic Jew, if you're a Hebrew Jew, and say, oh my, look at you. You're not speaking the language the Bible was written in. You're not worshiping in the temple. You don't do the sacrifices. You're off in these other pagan lands, listening to their music, reading their books. Your children are schooled in their schools. You're not pure like us. And there was a tension that existed between the Hebrew Jews and Hellenistic Jews. So this tension is behind this whole story. What's going on here? Well, apostles are getting food. They're saying, okay, let's distribute the food. And you have a bunch of Hebrew Jews saying, oh, let's not give it to her because she's a Hellenist. Let's just give it to the real Jews, the real people. Let's neglect them. So now the Hellenistic Jews that weren't just the women, the people were saying, wait a minute. The food isn't going to the right people. It's only staying within this little culture of Hebrew Jews. Okay, so there is the problem. It's a very intense problem because it isn't just among the women. It's actually creating a division within the church itself. The church is on the front end of dividing and becoming a Hebrew church and a non-Hebrew church. Very intense divisions forming. Okay, it's starting to form. This is a key problem in the church. And now the Greek-speaking Jews are saying, hey... We are being neglected. Okay, so now you know the problem's a pretty significant problem. So let's look at the resolution of the problem. The way that uh, they, the, the apostles handle this problem is very important to observe because there's something really big going on here. This, this problem is so huge that if it's handled incorrectly, the, the resolution of it's handled incorrectly, it could stop the advancement of the church. So let's look at how they resolve it. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, so... Big problem. So they gather all the people out in that courtyard, at the outer courtyard of the temple, where they would meet daily. They gather all the 20 plus thousand people. 
And they say, okay, here's the deal. It's not right that we should give up the preaching of the Word and of prayer. In fact, the other way to say this is, it's actually wrong if we are the ones who have to directly solve this problem. Now, at face value, you might think, wow, these guys are lazy. They don't want to deal with it. Like, why in the world? Like, could you imagine that? This is a huge problem. This problem, in fact, has carried itself through the church in the very first 70, 80 years of the church. Will the Hebrew Jews accept the Greek Jews and then go even one step further? Will the Jewish people accept the Gentiles in as being brothers and sisters? This is the problem of the first century. And these guys say, you know what? This is a big problem, but we're not going to solve it. Now, it's not that they were paying these guys, but in one sense, you could have kind of an American response and say, well, what are we paying you for? This is your job. If you're not going to solve it, who's going to solve it? But it's quite a remarkable thing. Well, what do they do? I want you to notice what what they say here. Notice verse 4. He says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What are they saying here? They're saying, you know what? We have to keep our eye on this ball of prayer and the word. Now, what I want you to not think about is the fact that these guys are basically kind of sitting back in an office somewhere just studying the Bible and praying. Like, you know, God has gifted me with the gift of devotions, right? And what I do are my devotions all day long. And that's what I want to get paid to do is sit in my office and do devotions all day. That's not what they're saying. The ministry of prayer and the word is not just a bunch of guys that are antisocial, that hate people, and they love to study, and so they just sit around reading the Bible in Greek and Hebrew and, uh, and pray. The ministry of prayer and the word is the ministry of advancement. You've got to keep that in mind. What were these guys doing? These guys were standing in the temple proclaiming the word of the Lord. They were standing among the priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and and arguing the scriptures and showing them that Christ did come. He did die. He did rise from the dead. They were explaining the entire Old Testament and showing how it all points to Christ. They were establishing people in the word. They were teaching every day and making sure disciples were growing in their faith. They were committing themselves to the advancement of the Word of God. That's what that means. So don't insert devotions in there. Insert advancement in there. So they're saying, you know what, we can't set that aside. We can't set that aside. So what are we going to do? Because this is a significant problem. You see what they do in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. So now, they recognize it's a big problem. So it isn't just fix it yourselves. They didn't disengage. But they said you need to pick seven guys that have three qualifications. That's it, just three. Let's look at the three very simply. The first is good reputation, right? That's what good repute means. It means a good reputation. I like to call a person with good reputation, I like to just name them Teflon man. Teflon man means this, right? Nothing sticks to Teflon, right? And so the idea of a Teflon man is this, that it isn't that accusations aren't going to come against Teflon man. It's just that when it comes, it just kind of slides off them, right? And so, so you, we all know people that, that have 
bad reputations. And so if somebody comes along and says, did you hear that so-and-so did this? And your emotional response would be like, oh, wow, I could see that totally. I could see that. Right? And then that happens. Right? Those are people of poor reputation. So somebody comes along, spreads a little gossip, and if your first response is, oh, I could totally see that. In fact, I'm surprised it's not worse than that. Okay, that's not good repute. Good repute is when an accusation comes, people go, no way, can't see it. Can't buy it. So he says, find these guys that have lived such character that when the accusation comes, they're Teflon men. Hits them, slides off. It's the first qualification. Second qualification, they've got to be full of the Spirit. Remember, we've talked about the word full in the book of Acts. The word full in the book of Acts is just a way of saying under the control of. Under the control of. What does this mean? This means this is not a person who's under the control of his own passions, his own emotions, so that when trials and problems come, they're always responding in the flesh. You know when you're not, a person who's not full of the Spirit or under the control of the Spirit means that when problems come, they fly off the handles, they scream, they yell, they kick things, they're impulsive in their speaking, they say things, and then, you know, have to always dial it back. So he said, we don't need those kind of guys. We don't need somebody in, in the pressure of the moment blowing their top. We need somebody when the, when the pressure's on, the Spirit takes control of their tongue, takes control of their attitude, takes control of their flesh, full of the Spirit. And then finally, full of wisdom. Remember the word full means control, so controlled by wisdom. What does it mean to be controlled by wisdom? It means this, that they are able to take what they know about God and actually apply it in such a way that their life is actually living out what they know. So, let me give you an example of it in the negative. There's a lot of people who know a lot of truth, a lot of doctrine. Right? Their brain is just like fired up. They, they know all of this stuff about God. They can tell you every detail of the cross. They can tell you every doctrine of everything in the world. But yet, they don't have love. Right? Which means they're not full of wisdom. They're just full of information. But the person who's full of wisdom says, that truth of the cross has so impacted my life, I live out mercy and grace everywhere I go. I'm tenderhearted, I'm loving, I'm caring, I'm compassionate. Right? I actually can carry out and apply the word of God. So that means that when the person's giving help, you know that they're able to sit down with somebody, especially you know, a, a Hebrew Jew who doesn't want to deliver food to a Hellenistic Jew. You know this person can sit down and say, hey, let's talk about this. Let me help you understand the Word of God. Let me help you understand God's heart for the nations. Let me help you understand that God doesn't see these people this way. He created all of them. You're full of wisdom. You, you can actually talk somebody through it. So what you're saying is, we're not just looking for seven guys who are really good at delivering food. We're looking at seven guys who have character that people can't slander. We're looking for seven guys who have submitted to the Spirit of God and are able to carry out the Word of God in their life. Boom. These are the men. Just a threefold thing. And you know what they did? Is they just said, now, people, go out and find us seven guys who are this way. It's just that simple. Because remember, the apostles weren't just 
trying to sit back and just do their devotions and let someone else solve the problem. They're recognizing this is an important problem. Advancement and care need to go together, one leg after the other. They're just walking together. Okay, so notice what happened, verse 5. And, when, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, I w- just mark that. We're going to come back to that at the end. Just in your, in your brain, mark that. A unified response by the church. They all were in agreement. And then notice the list of names. We see them all there. We have Stephen, a man full of faith. Where We have this great description of Stephen. Why? Because he comes up next. So we're, you know, Luke's setting the table for, for Stephen, who's, who's going to preach the longest sermon in the Bible. He's killed for it, but it still was a long sermon, and I kind of like that. So uh, he's my model. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but notice the rest of these names. You see them all there. They all have one thing in common. They're all Greek names. It's very interesting. They're all Greek names. One's not even a Jew. One is a Greek who converted. A Gentile. So this is a pretty interesting list because they went out and they found people who could solve this problem. And they were all Greeks. So they bring these seven guys up. Notice what the apostles do. They laid hands on them. What does laying hands mean? Laying hands means they actually affirmed them. We affirm you guys in this position. So what's the problem? The problem is we have this prejudice that's going to get ready to tear the the church apart. But we have a second problem in light of that. The second problem is that it's such a huge problem that, that the people that God has gifted to advance the kingdom, if they were to stop advancing, if they were to deal with the problem, they'd have to stop advancing the church. This new problem has caused the leaders to come up with a solution. And the solution is let's get a second tier of leadership, godly men, who can solve this problem. Now let's look at the result. The result. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's a very powerful statement. I want you to notice what's being said there. Notice, the word of God continued to increase. What does that mean that the word of God continued to increase? It isn't that the word of God, like that it was lesser and then it became greater. What it means is increase means it went out even further. They were able to explain more. They were able to unpack more of the Old Testament, would be a way you'd say this, and show more of this truth, how it really connects to Jesus. Because these guys, whom God had gifted with the understanding of the word, We're able now to take that and begin to teach it in such a way that the apostles' teaching could continue to flourish. And they they, they had the space and the time to devote themselves to to get into obscure passages of the Old Testament and, and unpack those so that people could see it and understand it and be established in it. And then notice what happens as the word of the Lord keeps spreading, as it continues to go out, as it increases more and more, as it keeps going on and on, and, and, it, and it keeps getting out there further and further and further and reaching to the furthest reaches, notice that the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly. Now what I want you to notice is the way these early Christians are, or, what the, or, or the way Luke describes these early Christians. Notice, he calls them disciples. He doesn't really use the word believers. He uses the word disciples. 
And that would be pretty obvious why he would use that word. Because really the idea of being a a Christian isn't just to believe in Jesus. It's to follow Jesus. It's to say, I'm all in for you. And, And because these guys were able to take the time to unpack the word, people began to understand the truth and they were willing to follow it more. And so now, it wasn't just that they got more believers. It wasn't just that they went out, told everybody Jesus rose from the dead. Do you believe? Yes. Great. Let's move on to the next place. Do you believe he rose? Yes. Okay, great. Look at this. We got 70,000 people that believe that Jesus rose from the dead. What they were saying is, listen, I want to explain to you who Jesus is and what he did and why he is worth submitting to as Lord of your life and why he's worth following with all that you have and why it's worth putting up with whatever pain you got to put up with to follow Jesus. Why it's worth giving up this whole life to follow him. I I want you to know this. These guys were able to help people remain as disciples. Had they disengaged from that work, what would have happened? They wouldn't have been devoting themselves to the truth to such a degree that disciples would be being formed. They take their eye off that ball, you start losing disciples. Okay? Notice what else. This is a huge one, too. And a great many of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Remember, these apostles are in the temple every day. There are thousands of priests. And they're sitting down with them, and no doubt explaining to them, guys, you go in to do these sacrifices, but I want to tell you something. Those sacrifices aren't enough. That God had planned on crushing his son And that sacrifice was to be the completed sacrifice. You don't need to do this. So notice what it says about these priests. It doesn't say that they believed in Jesus. They became obedient to the faith. What does that mean? It means they were walking away from the sacrificial system, walking away from their duty, setting aside their priestly robes and following Jesus, standing in defiance of the Sadducees and saying, the sacrifice is done. Christ has completed it. You see, because the apostles kept their focus on the Word, they were actually able to engage their culture with the truth. And now, all of a sudden, priests were laying aside their priestly garments and were following Jesus. Luke puts that summary statement there for a reason. Because he wants us to keep our eye on what this passage is really about. It's not just about the seven men that were chosen. It's about, the, it's, it's about the reason why they were chosen. They were chosen because this problem is a serious problem and is worthy of seven men who have good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Right? It's important that those kind of men deal with this, this problem. But it's also important because the Word of God is to advance. Advance care, advance care, advance care. One foot after the other. That's the idea. And Luke is showing us that they, they kept their eye on the ball. So, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? Well, I told you to keep in mind that statement that, uh, about the fact that what they said pleased the whole gathering in verse 5. I told you I wanted to keep that in mind because I was thinking I could turn around and talk about deacons at this point or we could talk about elders and we could try to figure out how all of this stuff fits in in our context. But I'm not really going to do that. What I want us to do is I was thinking, you know, the application that I would like to draw from this is the application of that one verse where they said, and what they said pleased the people. 
And the application for me is this, that, that there is an agreement that we as a church, that our church, Kishwaukee Bible Church, would agree that care and advancement is, are both equally important. And in one foot we advance, and the next foot we care, and the next foot we advance, and we walk together as long as God has us walk on this planet with those two things going on. And that we recognize both as priorities. And so I sat down and I made a list of five things that I think, you know what? There are five things that I would want to pull from this text that we should agree on as a church. And what I want to do is I want to give you the five things. They'll be up on the screen here in a second. I want to give you the five things. And what I want us to do as a church is to say, you know what? We agree with this. And then as the needs arise, that our leadership team would respond accordingly. And there might be needs that arise in the church. And that need might come across my desk. And I might say, you know what? I think this guy over here should solve that problem. Or another situation might come up. And it might come across my desk. And I might say, you know what? I think I should be fully in on that. Either way. But that we recognize together that we're not trying to gift one person with both responsibilities. That, you, you know, that you're going to say, okay, Jeff, you're on staff here. You've got to both advance and care, advance and care, advance and care. Forget about your family. You're going to do it all, Jeff. That's not a bad idea. No, I'm joking. <laughs> then I could do my devotions all day. No, I'm just, I'm, Jeff's actually already doing this. Sorry, Jeff. You know? He's over here looking at me going, hey, Steve, that's what you do to me all the time. No, I'm joking. But we don't want to say to Jeff, Jeff, you've got to do all of it, man. You've got to do all of it. We've got to ask ourselves... There will be seasons when we might say, Jeff, you got to advance, and we need to pray that God would raise up men to solve this problem. And that kind of reality. So let me give you the five things that I would like us to agree. And I just want you to think about these and in your heart say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with our church on this. Here's the first one. We should all agree that there's a tension between advancing and caring. We should agree with that. Big needs arise in the church. And all of a sudden, when a big crisis happens, we want to just like double down on that crisis. It's a tension that exists. It's difficult. It's very difficult. How do you keep going when there's a big problem that's keeping you from going? It's, it's, real, it's a real issue. And we should at least put that on the table and acknowledge that that can be hard for a church sometimes. And it can be hard for us to, to, to deal with that and to find our place and to find our what is our priority here. And those problems come. Those seasons come in a church. But the second thing that we should agree on is that both advancing and caring are equally important. We don't want to pit one against the other. I don't want to stand up here and say, hey, my job aligns more with the apostles, so I'm about advancing, so don't call me. I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. But what I want to be able to say is that, man, your problem is just as important as it is that God has left us here with something that we are to invest and multiply. And when he returns, he didn't return so that we could say we buried it in a box, you know, to protect it. He's never happy with that answer. And so we need to figure out how do we care in advance. So we want to say that they're both important. So third thing we we should all agree on. There are leaders who should lead in advancement. And there are leaders who should lead in caring. It's pretty obvious. We need both. We need both. The fourth thing we should be agreeing 
We need to keep our eyes out on those who are qualified to shepherd in the caring aspect of the church and those who are qualified to lead in the advancing of the church. And here's what this simply means. If there is somebody that fits that reputation that you see there in Acts 6, you should tell us. You should tell that person and say, I think you're that person. When I read that list, I think of you. Your name pops into my head. We need you. You should tell that person. You should tell me so that I can go annoy that person until they submit to the leading of the Spirit. We should do this together, right? You should let us know. And fifth, that having a balanced leadership team is what God designed for the church. That there should be balance in this. When we get out of balance in one or the other, and in the history of our church, we have gotten out of balance, you know, every year we get out of balance in this. You know, we see it, we feel it. There are seasons when we're advancing so much and talking about advancing, people are saying, what about me? I don't feel cared for. And then sometimes we're so dealing with the issues and people are saying, well, what's our church doing in our community? We're not doing anything, right? And we feel that, I feel that. And that's a real tension and we, we should put it on the table and acknowledge that. But we should be aiming for balance in our leadership. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is as you think about those five things that in, in your heart, say, yeah, this is what we need. And the take home then is we need names. We need names of people. Because I think this is how God designed the church to advance and to care for itself at the same time. So why don't we pray? I want to pray. I want to pray for the people that God has already gifted who aren't helping and serving in this way. And let's just pray that as a church we would have that balance between advancing, caring, advancing, caring, advancing, caring. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the fact that this passage of Scripture has shown us a reality of the church, that internal tension between caring and advancing. God, that we would have such wisdom to know how to balance our leadership team to ensure that we are caring, advancing at the same time. Lord, we have failed in both areas, in both ways. We have failed to care for people in our church. We have failed to be faithful with the gospel you've entrusted to us. This is a struggle for us, God. It's a real tension that exists for us in real time. Help us, God, as as leadership teams to, to be wise with this. Help us, God, as just your flock to respond appropriately. Lord, I pray this year that you would raise up more than seven. I pray that you would raise up people who can help us advance and that you would raise up people who could help us care so that when somebody walks in the door of this church, they feel the love and the care and the compassion and that when division kind of raises its ugly head, we have people of wisdom in your spirit that can solve these problems. And at the same time, you would raise up people who know how to talk about the truth of the gospel in a pagan and secular and religiously diverse climate. People who have the courage to go onto the campus of NIU and declare your truth and, and, and talk about the truth of the scriptures in relation to other religions. People who, who can walk around the community and deal with all of the issues that are going on in our culture. People who have wisdom to advance the kingdom. Lord, may the faithfulness to the mission 
and the faithfulness to loving each other occur with balance in our midst. Help us, God. It's a struggle for us. Help us, God, that we would be operating in that sort of way. Thank you, Lord, for this truth of this passage, Lord. Raise up the leaders from our midst. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.